people. You can grab your Bibles and open them up this morning. Um, If you have them there with you, we'll be jumping around to a number of passages. Um, I read a book recently on uh, the the Roman Empire um, and why the Roman Empire fell. And the Roman Empire was probably the greatest empire the world has ever known. It lasted hundreds and hundreds of years, and at its peak, uh, the empire stretched all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. The emperor, who was in charge of the empire, ruled lands as diverse and as distant as Egypt in northern Africa to Syria, all the way to Spain and France and to what we now call the United Kingdom, Britain. I mean, the empire dominated, the Roman Empire dominated the known Western world for such a long time that it's, it's really hard to imagine that it actually collapsed. I mean, they had everything going for them in one sense. And that question, it's the book I read, How Rome Fell, that question has fascinated and interested scholars and historians for centuries, all the way back to the 1700s. People started exploring that question and thinking about that question. How could an empire so big and with such political force and with such wealth and such a powerful army, how could it collapse? How could it come to an end? I mean, in that time period, no other kingdom or state could possibly match the Roman Empire's military might. I mean, nobody else was even close. No army was big enough, no army was strong enough to invade Rome, to defeat the Roman army, and to take over the empire. But one of the things that happened as you read the account of the fall of Rome is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, there were There were small incursions into the Roman Empire, into Roman territory. And there were these different bands of people who lived outside of the empire. Sometimes they call them barbarians. And they would enter into Roman-controlled lands for a time. And they would make incursions into the land. And these these, uh, small invasions took their toll on the empire over time. And these probably weren't the main cause of Rome collapsing, but they at least contributed to the empire's demise. I mean, Rome had to defend thousands and thousands of miles of frontier lands from these barbarian hordes or these barbarian people groups. And they were were constantly checking their defenses and making sure that their defenses were adequate to to meet the, uh, the, the potential invasions or these raids that might happen. And sometimes these these groups of people would come into the empire if there were no defenses and they would move entire populations into the empire and try to settle in lands and start farming these lands and taking land from the Roman Empire. And so the defense of the borderlands was key for any emperor if he was going to maintain control and to maintain uh, the land that he had received when he became the emperor. And so he had to put into place a constant watchfulness and a very intentional strategy to defend the frontier lands from raids or invasions or from people moving into the empire. Now, for many Christians who struggle with anxiety and struggle with worry, the fight feels a little something like what I have just described concerning the Roman Empire, the borders of the empire. It feels like there's constant pressure on you and 
that if you don't have the proper defenses up, then you're going to give in to anxiety and you have to guard yourself at all times from worry and from anxiety or else you're going to be invaded and overwhelmed by these these anxious thoughts. And this morning, I want to try to help with that. Now, I can't promise you that I'm going to give you uh, something that is going to give you a once-for-all strategy that will defeat anxiety and worry and it will never come back again. I, I just can't do that this morning. But what I can do is I can offer you some intentional defense strategies to help you, to help you guard and fight against anxiety when it comes up and to set those defense edges against the frontier lands so that you are ready and you are prepared and you have an attack plan when anxiety and when worry come up and you know what to do. So last week, we tried to diagnose anxiety. We tried to explain to you some of the basics of how this particular struggle functions. And I told you that biblically speaking, anxiety is an emotion And it's an emotion that has been twisted and it has been bent out of shape because of the fall into sin. Our emotions now don't work properly. They don't function as they should. And so anxiety is the negative counterpart to a positive emotion or a positive disposition that God has given us. And that positive emotion is vigilance. It's care and concern for others. So we are designed by God to perceive a threat in our own lives and in the lives of others, and we're designed to respond with faith and trust in God. Anxiety perceives a threat and responds with faith and trust in self. It turns inward and constantly tries to manage the perceived threat without trust in God. And so hopefully now we understand a bit better what anxiety is, what is happening in us when it strikes. And today I want to offer you three defenses against anxiety and worry. Now before I get to these three and start walking you through them, let me just remind you that you're going to have to take these three defenses and you're going to have to specifically apply them in your life. Each person has a unique struggle. Uh, anxiety and worry, fear attack each of us in different ways regarding different issues, different perceived threats in our lives. And so you're going to have to take these three strategies and you're going to have to work to implement them and apply them in your own life in unique ways. But what I want to do this morning is offer you these three biblical strategies that you can then take and adapt to your own defense. And that's going to require a little bit of time and effort on your part to sit down to get a notebook out, and to, to write out specifically how, how you can do that in your own life. So let me give you these three strategies, and then I'll encourage you to take them and use them on your own. First of all, what do you do with anxiety? How do you defend against it? You understand it. What we tend to do, what I tend to do, is I tend to experience anxiety, and I don't give it much thought other than just letting it run and letting it happen and assuming that that's just the way it's going to be. I'm going to have to deal with this. But God designed emotions, all sorts of emotions, to be understood. God designed emotions to work with our thinking in order to be understood. Let me say it this way. 
emotions in some ways are like notifications on your phone. When you receive a notification on your phone, you have to look at it and see what it's pointing you to, what it's telling you. You don't just ignore it. You don't just hope it'll go away. You see it and you know that this could be pointing you to something very, very good. That Amazon package that you've been expecting has showed up on the porch. Or it could be pointing you to something very, very bad. There's a tornado warning in your area, right? So you see the notification and then you investigate what's going on. And that's how it is with all of our emotions. They notify us that something's happening. They point deeper into us to our values and to our affections. A lot of times we treat emotions like they're blind or dumb. But that's not how they work at all. Emotions rise in us. They come from a perception of the world. Emotions are smart. They're perceptive. And a lot of times when we experience emotions, we don't really understand what's going on in our hearts and we don't know what perception those emotions are coming from. So picture two 10-year-old boys, all right? Two 10-year-old boys sitting in a classroom waiting to take a test. And the teacher walks into the classroom that morning and the teacher announces that the test has been postponed till tomorrow. One of the boys immediately feels great relief and happiness. And he feels great relief and happiness because he spent the previous night playing with his friends and did not study for one second in preparing for this test. And now he knows that he has an extra night to go home probably play with his friends again, but to at least have the opportunity to study and to prepare for the test the next day. The other boy sitting there is sad at the announcement. And he's sad because rather than playing with his friends, he spent four hours learning the material backwards and forwards, and he is confident that he's ready to take the test today. Two different emotional responses to the same information, the same situation that has been presented. Each of them had a different emotional response because they perceived the information, they perceived their circumstances in different ways. Same announcement, incredibly different emotions in response. So emotions are perceptive. They come from a, an understanding of the world, a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing circumstances. But beyond perception, emotions also cue you in to the fact that you care about something. You don't feel anger. You don't feel love. You don't feel anxiety unless you're dealing with something that is valuable. It's important to you. It's something you care about. So imagine there's a third little boy sitting in the classroom. And when that announcement is made, this little boy couldn't care less. He doesn't, doesn't matter to him at all. He feels no emotional response at all to the announcement of the test being postponed because he really doesn't care that much about it. It's not important to him at all. Thus, no emotions come up. So you could say it like this. Emotions are concerned-based 
perceptions of the world, concern-based perceptions of the world. Emotions tell us that you're perceiving the world in a particular way, and then they tell us that you're feeling this because something out there is important to you. Let me show you a biblical example of this. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. This is a story of the apostles who have been arrested for preaching the gospel. They're beaten because they have been preaching the gospel. And the leaders, the magistrate, doesn't want them to do this anymore. And so they're beaten. They're told not to preach the gospel, but they leave with this set of emotions. Look at this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And you can see here, their emotional response to this circumstance is joy. Why? How can it be joy when they've just been arrested and beaten? That doesn't sound like a very joyful thing to experience, but they experience this emotion of joy because they have a particular perception of the world. What is it? They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, right? They had a perception of the world that they were counted of themselves, that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name, for the gospel, and they rejoiced and they had this perception because it was regarding something that was valuable to them, the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perception and concern. So, what does all of that background on emotion mean for you and I when it comes to anxiety and worry? It means that when I experience anxiety, when you experience anxiety, it is a notification. It's cueing you in to something that your heart values and it's cueing you in, it's letting you know that you have a particular perception of the world. You're seeing yourself, the world, God, in certain ways. So, let me give you a, a personal example of this. I tend to get anxiety when I feel physical pain and discomfort that I cannot explain. That's a, a point of tension for me. And so what I tend to do is I, I start to feel this pain, I can't explain it, and I worry that the pain will be something serious or that it will never go away, that it will be chronic. Well, why do I worry about that? Why is anxiety popping up there? Because I value physical comfort. It's important to me. I want to be comfortable. And that comfort is being threatened and so I get anxious. When I feel that emotion of anxiety, it's cueing me into something going in, on in my heart. It's cueing me into a value system that I have, and it's also telling me a certain, that I have a certain perception of the world. I'm believing certain things about the world around me and about myself. We'll get to that in just a minute. So, this first strategy is so important for us when we approach our anxiety. It's a defense strategy. And so what we need to do to defend against anxieties, we need to understand it. We need to know that we're experiencing or know it's going to come. And then we work back from the emotion to our perception of the world and to our value system. It's a notification pointing us to something going on in our hearts and in our thinking. But you can't just stop there with understanding it. 
Once you see what's going on in your value system and in your thinking, your perception of the world, then you have to go to this next strategy. Doubt it. So you understand it, and then you doubt your anxiety. Not that you're having it, but let me explain. So emotions are based on perceptions of the world. They're not dumb. They're very smart. They're perceptive of the world. Now, our perceptions of the world can either be based on the truth or they can be based on a false way of seeing things, the world, ourself, God. So if I believe that every time a full moon comes out, once a month, that my neighbor will turn into a wolf-like animal, then I will be fearful and anxious every month when it comes time for a full moon. My experience of anxiety is very real. It's there, but the perception of the world that my anxiety comes from, that it's based on, is false. I'm not trying to belittle anxiety. I'm just giving you a very crazy example to help you see what's going on there. My anxiety is real, but the perception that I'm having that it's based on is false. And so here's why this strategy of doubting your anxiety is so important. I'm telling you this morning that sinful anxiety and worry is always built on a wrong perception of the facts. And it's always built on misplaced values. So this is one of the differences between vigilance, right, and sinful anxiety. Faith-filled vigilance, the God-given positive counterpart to anxiety, is based on reality. It's based on the facts. It's based on who God is and who I am and the way he's made the world. Whereas sinful anxiety is built off of wrong perceptions and wrong values. They're opposites. I'd say it this way. Anxiety always lies to us. It's not telling you the truth about God and about the world. It's built off of a faulty perception of the self, the world, and of God. So a couple examples of this of the way anxiety lies to us. Anxiety wants you to believe that you are a fortune teller. Think about what happens when when you're in a panic or you're dealing with a lot of anxiety. You are worried about the future. It's always about the future. You don't worry about the past. And if you do think about the past, you're worried about the implications of that for the future. You're constantly asking what if questions. What if I get embarrassed? What if I fail? What if I get hurt? What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? Anxiety is always future focused and it always deals with hypothetical situations. It wants you to believe that you can predict the future, that you are an accomplished fortune teller. So there even may be a real situation. You may be worried about a relationship at work and your anxiety is making you worry that that relationship and that situation is going to turn out badly. 
You don't know how it's going to turn out. Matthew speaks directly to this when it comes to anxiety. Matthew 6.34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, James 4 says of this, and it's not on the screen, but it says that you don't know what the future holds. And there's a little bit of humility that goes with this here, that we don't know the future. We can't be anxious about tomorrow because we have no idea what's coming. That doesn't mean we don't think about it and don't plan carefully and intentionally and use wisdom, but it does mean that we don't need to be anxious about the future because we don't possess knowledge of the future. And anxiety never focuses on the fact that the future is only known by God. Your anxiety is incredibly confident that it knows all the answers to those what-if questions that you're asking. And the reality is, is that God is the only one who knows the future because he is the one who has planned the future. And so here's here's the truth. So you, you doubt that you're a fortune teller. You doubt your anxiety. You know what it's coming from, and now you start to doubt it. And you doubt it by fighting it with the truth that God not only knows the future, but he is good and he is filled with grace and he has planned that future, whatever it may hold, for your good and for your benefit. His desire is to do you good and to see you conformed to the image of Christ. And so when your mind starts traveling down the road that has signs all over it that say, what if, what if, on both sides of the road, doubt your anxiety. Doubt your ability to answer those questions because you can't answer those questions. Anxiety also lies to you by wanting you to think that you are the sovereign king. And so one of the reasons that we mentally ask those questions, those what if questions, is because in my own life, I want to gain control of the situation. I want to go down every possible pathway and figure out exactly what I will do so that I can gain control of the situation, so I can be in charge. Each one of us has a particular way we want life to work out. We want things to go this way. And so we have anxiety when we think or we imagine that life won't turn out the way I want it to. And so we try to figure it out and we try to gain control of the situation by anxiety and by stress and by worry. Now, of course, it's a lie to believe that any of us have control over our lives in the future and what's going to happen in our circumstances. One, One author put it this way. Many times when fear turns into anxiety, we have concluded that God is either not good enough or not powerful enough to stop something from happening that will ultimately harm us. In many cases, when we are anxious, it is because we have decided that we are the only person we can trust to keep ourselves safe. Anxiety is a form of faith. It's faith in self rather than God. It's trusting me. Who can keep me safe? Me. 
I'm the only one who can do it. And so, in order to fight anxiety, to battle against it, what I'm telling you this morning, a biblical strategy for this is to begin doubting what your anxiety is preaching to you. Doubt your perception of the world. Doubt your anxiety. I mean, when, when anxiety pops up in my life, I just tend to believe it. I just tend to accept the way things are in anxiety's view of the world. I tend to trust my anxiety more than anything else. And so what I'm telling you to do is to start exposing the lies that anxiety is telling you and see them for what they really are. So understand, read the notifications, know what's going on in your perception of the world, the way you're seeing the world, your values, what's important to you. Doubt the perception of the world that anxiety is giving you. Doubt the lies that you're a fortune teller, that you are the sovereign king of the future. And then here's our third strategy this morning. Understand it, doubt it, and transform it. So if anxiety, as we've talked about, is a perversion, it's a twisting and a bending of a God-given emotion, there's a God-given way of going through the world that perceives a threat and is concerned for the good of others. It's vigilant toward that threat and it's vigilance with faith. And so as believers, our goal is not just to try to put away anxiety, but to transform it into the proper God-given virtue that we should have as believers. So this morning, I want to be straightforward without hurting feelings, all right? I'm going to be very, very abrupt for a second. And I, let me tell you, I'm speaking to my own heart as much as to anyone who is listening to me this morning. By definition, by definition, sinful anxiety, this twisting of a God-given emotion, vigilance, by definition, sinful anxiety is self-centered. It always is. Anxiety and worry, when we experience them, they turn the gaze inward to the self rather than outward to concern for others and trust in God. By definition, that's what happens. I get wrapped up in my own thoughts and I am deeply self-centered when I'm anxious and when I'm worried. A friend of mine who is a pastor, I was talking to him this week about anxiety and worry. And he showed me in scripture how the cure for anxiety is humility. And we normally wouldn't put those two together. We normally wouldn't think, well, humility is the cure for anxiety. We normally would think, well, it's faith, it's trust in God. And those, those do go hand in hand, humility and trust in God, though. And I think the fact that humility, and I'll show you in Scripture where this is taught, I think the fact that humility is the cure for anxiety shows us just how deeply self-centered and proud in a lot of ways our anxiety is. Let me show you this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility here is the antidote. It's the the cure. It's the way you address anxiety. Casting your anxieties on him means humbling yourself under his mighty hand. Now, we need to properly understand humility. Humility is not being down on yourself. It's not thinking of yourself less. In fact, most of the time when I am down on myself, it's because I'm exhibiting pride and arrogance. It's because I'm actually really high on myself. And I think I should be doing a lot better than this because I'm so awesome. It's not being down on yourself. Godly humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not being concerned with yourself. And so the humble person is turned outward in focus on others and concern for others. And the humble person is turned outward toward God and love and trust toward him. C.S. Lewis said this about true humility. I'll read it to you. Hopefully you can see that on the screen. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And that's the point. That's humility. It's turned outward toward others. It forgets about self and loves others and is concerned for others and loves God. And that is exactly why we need to be reminded of the godly emotional counterpart to anxiety. Vigilance, care, concern for the good of others. Remember, I told you last week, the same word for sinful anxiety is used in Scripture to talk about this positive counterpart. And it's talked about in a couple of places. Let me remind you of those. 1 Corinthians 12. But God has so composed the body, the body of Christ here, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same anxiety, the same care for one another. And then Philippians chapter 2, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious, genuinely concerned for your welfare. And you can see that this positive counterpart is used here twice in the context of care and concern for others, of looking out from yourself to other people and wanting what's best for them. And so, instead of sitting around fretting about the future, instead of getting wrapped up in all the what-if questions of my own thoughts and how I'm going to manage this and how I'm going to figure this out and what I'm going to do and what will happen if this happens, oh no, then I need to do this and then this, instead of going down that road, turn your attention to others. 
show some godly care and concern for someone else in your life. I mean, if you want, this is a incredibly practical way to begin to address anxiety. If there's a list of to-do things that you can immediately act on when you feel anxious, this would be at the top of the list. If anxiety is self-centered, then the answer is not to go into your room and wrestle with your own thoughts. The answer is to go out and serve others. Think about others. Turn your attention while you're fighting anxiety to other people. Scripture is clear. We put off and we put on. So begin practicing, even before you feel like it, begin practicing the virtue of love for others by doing good to others. And it'll start to address worry and anxiety. I'm not saying they'll instantly go away, but they have to start to dissipate because you're practicing the godly counterpart of vigilance and care and concern for others. So, Practically, what does this look like? Pray for others. Do something kind for another person. Write someone an encouraging note. Take someone a meal. Anxiety breeds, it grows on self-centeredness. And others-focused love is the answer to it. Now, It's not just, the cure and the answer is not just care and concern for other people. It's also turning your gaze outward toward God and toward faith and toward love and trust in him. Let me go back to 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, Because he cares for you. I've been meditating on that phrase. He cares for you this week. I mean, live here. This is the truth that if you really start to dig back into your thinking, if you start to try to understand your values and your motivations when you're experiencing anxiety, this is what we doubt, isn't it? I mean, this is the core of the issue. I start to honestly believe that God really doesn't care for me. If this happens, it shows that he really doesn't care for me. It is hard to be anxious when you deep down really believe that the sovereign king of the universe knows your name and cares for you. So live here. Go here. Ponder this reality. Doubt your anxiety because it's preaching to you that he doesn't care for you. Doubt it and live here. So, three hopefully practical strategies for you this morning. Three strategies to help you sort of set up a defense perimeter here not claiming that you're going to solve this this coming week and that you'll never experience any anxious thoughts again. But hopefully this gives you 
a way to set up a defense system so that when anxious thoughts come, you don't just accept them and are not just overwhelmed with them, but you can begin the process of going, okay, what's going on? What is, what is this anxiety showing me that I value and that is important to me? What is this anxiety telling me about my perception of the world? And then when you start to understand that, then you can begin to doubt your perception of the world that anxiety is giving you. You can begin to doubt your anxiety, and then you can begin to transform that anxiety into concern and care for others and to trust and love to God because he cares for you. And I think one of the best ways to do this, to come up with a specific strategy for you, I think one of the best things you could do is to talk to someone about this. Jot things down on paper. That'll be a part of it, no doubt about it. But spend some time this week. If this is a major struggle for you, or even if it's a sometimes struggle for you, spend some time this week talking through these three defense strategies with someone close to you. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a pastor, an elder. But talk through these things with someone and get their insight and get them to help you to put together a defense strategy that will land you at this point where you're knowing and believing that God does care for you no matter what you face in the future. So I hope that's helpful these couple weeks. If you have questions or cares or concerns about this, I would love to set up a Zoom meeting this week and to talk with you about it. Uh, This is close to my heart. This is a thing that I have struggled with and have fought against and am currently just wrestling with how best to approach this. And so I would love to spend the time just walking you through this and trying to help in any way that I can. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful for um, your grace and love in this area. We're thankful for the fact that you do care for us. What a gift those words are. What a gift that reality is. That the the sovereign king of the universe actually is concerned and cares for me and the daily pattern and circumstances of my life. Help me to rest in that. Help me to, to live there this coming week. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of it. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.